I don't know about you, but when I was 18, my biggest ambition was graduating. When she was 18, Matresa Berg had already written her first number one single. I'm high school graduate Tom Maley, and this is Write You a Song. Okay, I also did manage to graduate college. Shout out Central Washington University, but all that's beside the point. This month's guest grew up in a musical family. Her mother was a songwriter and a session singer. Her stepfather was a songwriter whose credits include the Gene Watson classic, I've Got Memories to Burn, and Charlie Pride's Is Anybody Going to San Antonio? So it stands to reason that being around singers and songwriters would rub off a little on a person. But in Matrace's case, it was more than just a smudge. She was gifted the talent and the drive to have over 50 of her songs recorded at last count, including several that helped female artists dominate country music in the 1990s like never before or since. She's a CMA and ACM winning 2008 Nashville Songwriting Hall of Fame inductee who's quick to give credit to her co-writers. She's married to Jeff Hanna of the legendary Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and she's a pretty great solo artist, too. Matresa Berg, welcome to Write You a Song. So, first things first, you wrote your first song when you were 18? Well, my first hit song, yeah. You're, yeah, that's yeah. good clarification. It was, yeah, it was, it was my senior year gift. <laughs> And it did, it wasn't just a hit. It it went to number one. Yes, it did. I wrote it with Bobby Braddock, um, who, was, who was a legend. And we were at a party. I wandered off to the other side of the house and started playing the piano. And he came in and sat with me and asked me what I was doing. I said, I don't know. I was just working on this one thing. And we wrote it really quickly. And then, like, in two weeks, it was recorded by T.G. Shepard and Karen Brooks. And, I mean, it was just, it, it, it all happened so fast, and it was kind of a shock to the system, you know, since I was a puppy. You turn down the covers, I'll turn down the lights. As we turn to each other, there's no turning back tonight. I lay on, I love you, you lay on your chest. Let's, let's hit rewind on that. It's not every 18-year-old that finds themselves at a party with Bobby Braddock, who, for those who don't know, is one of the most legendary songwriters of all time. He stopped loving her today, uh, D-I-V-O-R-C-E. But right. you uh, you were born in, in, in Nashville, and you were raised in a musical family. Your mom was—was right. was, was she a session singer? Yeah, she, well, she was, she was not a full-time— uh, backup singer. My aunt, uh, her her big sister, was sang on a lot of records, and uh, my uncle played with Mel Tillis, mm-hmm. played steel guitar, and my mom, through she she did some writing, she did some singing. She she eventually went back to nursing school, but we had a lot of old family friends who were songwriters, you know. And back when they were hanging out, when they were young. You know, these songwriters were young and broke, and 
and they all eventually became Hall of Fame songwriters. So I had this um, connection to all these songwriters. I was kind of like their, you know, their music daughter. So I was very, very fortunate to have that all surrounding me when I was growing up. But you had to have kind of the proclivity to be a musician, a singer, songwriter, or they would have just been people hanging around. There there had to be something like <laughs> from very early on uh, that, that compelled you to point towards music and to draw, I guess, inspiration from these people. Oh, absolutely. Those were my heroes. That was, I think... From the time I was really small, uh, maybe kindergarten, I knew that that's what I wanted to be. When I grew up, I wanted to be a songwriter. So um, I guess, you know, I had the good fortune of knowing what I wanted to do and studying what I wanted to do and, 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 ha- and having people to point me in the right direction. I mean, from the time I was 16, they everybody kind of, told my mom that they thought I could do this. So, is, um, is, it, is, is it true that your mom kind of discouraged you from the business, but your dad sort of on the side would encourage yeah. you? <laughs> yes. Yes. Mom, but I think just because my mom knew the music business and she didn't want her daughter swimming in that pool. Um, it, it was, uh, it was, it was hard for women back then um you really had to have balls <laughs> <laughs> ironically exactly what's that that elizabeth cook song takes balls to be a woman <laughs> sometimes it takes balls to be a woman standing up to a test She did have a friend, Marie Wilson, who she had written some hits, um, and she was like, I called her Aunt Marie. She was like a godmother almost. Um, that's a long story, but uh, she she helped pay my mother's, uh, she, she promised to pay my mother's hospital bill when she was uh, stuck at Vanderbilt get in labor with me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Yeah, they were like, "Who, who can, who can vouch?" Like, she was very young, and uh, I, I just, I don't know that what they wanted to do with her. But anyway, Marie um, gave them her credentials or whatever you, mm-hmm. whatever you'd say, and 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 they and they checked her in. It's almost like uh, the gift of repayment was you having this musical ability and being able to carry on that legacy, that tradition. Yes, and it felt darn good doing it because it's, music has always been such a huge part of my family, um, my mother's family. Um, all my aunts sang. They they sang on the Renfro Valley Barn Dance Radio Show when they were just kids, and and everybody played, everybody sang, and. It did feel, and we had a fourteen grandchildren. I'm the only one that 
got in the business. <laughs> really? <laughs> My grandmother was so relieved that one of us got in. <laughs> um, did you take it for granted or was it easy to sort of take it for granted at the beginning because you were just always around it and bam, you have, you know, your first hit and it's a number one when you're 18 years old writing with a, a song. Bobby Braddock was a songwriting legend then. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, yeah. did, were you able to a- appreciate that moment at that time or did it did it take a while for you? Oh, no, I, I, I appreciated it very much. I mean, that was my mother's lifetime dream was to have a hit song. So it was not lost on me how special that was. And I wanted it for my mother so badly. Um, so, no, I never, never took it for granted, and I still don't. You started off, obviously, as a songwriter, but then you had a kind of a, a radio-friendly commercial swing at country music in the late 80s, early 90s, and then you've been primarily a songwriter or a singer-songwriter. Mm-hmm. Do you prefer songwriting, or would you rather have had your singing career blow up too. And it was such a long time uh, ago, but do, do you think about that at all? Yeah. And, and how do you feel about that? You know, I, I really never set out to be a big star. Um, it was really surprising when Joe Galani, who, who is the head of RCA, um, offered a record deal and I can't believe this. He took me to lunch, you know, to to ask me, you know, what my what what my goals were, you know, and if I was interested in making a record. <laughs> I told him I'd have to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, as I look back on it, and he loves to make it. He he has his own little routine. He does when he tells people the story. <laughs> Makes me sound like oh, I just can't be bothered, but. I was very torn about that. I I also, you know, because um, my uncle was a touring musician. My aunt was on the road a lot, too. And it's not an easy life. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, especially if you're if you're the artist. And I wasn't sure if I was a cut out for that in my life. Twenty four seven. Um, the first record did pretty well. Um, I broke the top 20. I, I just felt like a fish out of water. I had terrible stage fright. Terrible stage fright because really? I really didn't play out. I didn't play out hardly ever. Mm-hmm. So and then I was just kind of thrust in front of Clint Black in front of 10,000 people. <laughs> and, yeah, trial by fire. And in a way, you were blessed to understand what you were getting into. And so you were probably able to look down the road a little bit and go, ah, this isn't going to be for me. Yeah. And and the, the decision was pretty much made for me. <laughs> I wasn't the most accessible, you know, country music artist. And uh, that's fine. <laughs> what do you mean by what do you mean by accessible from from the industry side? Or from, what do you mean? Just just from, uh, you know, as an artist, I don't think I wasn't like real big, huge, popular artist material. <laughs> well, one, of the, one of the songs from from that time is is uh, Things You Left Undone. And mm-hmm. that, 
you have a, a fantastic voice, and obviously your, your songwriting is sterling. I, I love oh, yeah. that song in particular because of the piano in it. It's almost got like a, you remember uh, Carolina and the Pines, Michael Martin? Oh, I love that. I love that record. Saturday, I drove into town to the co-op where all your old friends hang around. I heard one say, what you doing here? Well, I held my head up high, swallow my bitter tea. Take off and kind of took over country mm-hmm. for a while, and and you were a big part of that from the songwriter standpoint. But you yeah. were you were sort of on the uh, cusp of that as well. But no regrets. You're you're, you're glad you did what you did. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I had all these songs that I was working on, and I love to write songs on anything, and I love to write country songs. And fortunately, when all those girls were starting to take off they took my songs and it was a great ride (laughs) it was wonderful like just women were selling incredible amounts of records Mm -hmm. and dominating the charts and the songs were so good and so i don't know it was just it was a wonderful time i just feel so blessed what you just said is is so key, I think, to the success of, of women, in, especially in the 90s. The songs were so good. They were different. Yeah. I think the, the, the songs women were doing in the 90s, they were more intelligent. Well, um, I think they still are. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know what's changed. Um, I think there were some wonderful songs out there now. It just feels like... A, I don't know. Things have narrowed down a little bit. You know, it, it, it's it's hard to, you know, I don't really keep up with it that much anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I just know what I like. There's a story about you that that I read. Uh, your your last, if, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but the the last big hit you had on commercial radio was uh, you and Tequila. Um, yeah, baby. Which just <laughs> a great song and. You were talking to, I think it was a brother-in-law who was also a songwriter, like in 2014, 2015, when bro country was was really hitting. And you were actually saying, what What do I need? Were you asking him, like, how to write a, a bro country song? And you realized yeah. it wasn't for you. And so you came up with a, a, a different term that was hilarious. Bra country? Bra country. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe that genre didn't quite take off. But that, no, it didn't. Uh, uh, but is that what you're talking I'm ahead about? Ahead of like, my time. This way, no. 
<laughs> Do you think, though, it, women are becoming more prevalent in, in country again? Does that mean you as a songwriter may be able to step back to the fore a little bit because these are people who fit better with your, your style of writing? Um, I don't know. I'll have to look into that. Um, I, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, 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 I, no. I just don't. I don't really um, think about who's going to record my songs. I just write songs. Um, so, yay, if there's somebody out there who would love to do that. I, I do remember I gave um, Karen Fairchild, uh, she wanted a, like a little comp CD of demos, and she texted me. She said, you and tequila is so good. <laughs> but they didn't record it. Um, Wait, what? That Was was that before Kenny and, and Grace Potter had it? Yeah. Have any of the younger singer-songwriters reached out to you? Oh, yeah. I've written with Ashley McBride a bunch. And we do have a song. I don't know if she's going to record it or not, but me and her and Lori McKenna wrote a song I really love. You talk a lot about um, chemistry and, and having the right chemistry with, with the people that you write with. Um, and early yeah. on, it was mostly... It's important. Yeah. It, it was mostly men. It, it, talk a little bit about how... I think you found that men were actually a good foil to your your tendencies and, and, and what you wanted to write. They were able to what balance it out or just show you a different perspective? I think... A balance is a good is a good word for it, but but not much. I mean, the guys, you know, it's so funny. If you met the men, like Ronnie Samoset and Gary Harrison, and, and their personalities were are so manly, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> there's just nothing girly about these guys. But they're they were profoundly soulful, you know, and and they and they love strong women, so. I think that there was a balance in that what they would really latch on to were songs that didn't get too, I'm not going to say weak, but they just preferred if I came with an idea that, that it had a little spunk to it. <laughs> you had the, the idea for Wild Angels. And and I forgive me if I don't remember if it was Ronnie or Gary or another uh, co-writer. And but Gary you, Stenson and uh, Gary, yeah. Okay, and and you were kind of stuck on the song. You couldn't get it to move forward. And they, just talk about mm-hmm. how that song came to be, which was of course a huge hit for Martina McBride. I think her first number one. Yeah, I don't. I think it it started as this sort of esoteric kind of. I don't know, a probably self-indulgent song. And it was called Wild Angels on Blue Horses. And I don't know what I was smoking that day, but, you know, that's what it was. <laughs> and we got so deep. I was writing it with Harry, and we got so deep into it, and we actually demoed it, like a work tape demo. And we sent it around town. And everybody put it on hold. And then they would call later and say, what does this song mean? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And so the the fact that they were putting it on hold and the lyric was just perplexing to them made me think, ah, it's a hit, but I need a better lyric. 
and Gary Harrison, I always called him the closer. Whenever I get stuck, Gary's the dude that he just has this, I don't know, bird's eye view of a song where he can see exactly where it's going off the rails. So I asked him to come in on this song, and he immediately saw the problem and fixed it, like boom, boom, boom. And so we redid the vocal on the demo, and and Martina took it and did a wonderful job. Of course, we all know that. What was the fix exactly? Did he drop the reference? He dropped Blue Horses. Yeah, he just yeah. said, just repeat Wild Angels. That was it? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, he had, he had a great first line, too. <laughs> writing a commercial hit for somebody and then writing for one of your albums, which for lack of a better term, your, your, your albums and your own songs that you sing are like, and this is kind of in the Americana vein, but they're more literary. Um, how do you sort that out? Well, I think as I've gotten older, I've just wanted to reach a little bit farther in, into, into the stories and, I'm I'm such a huge fan of great literature. I'm I'm just a huge I'm like a, I'm a groupie. I'm a groupie, a writer groupie. Mm-hmm. And I just uh that I wanted to expand into that world in what in the, the way that I knew how and that was through writing songs. And you know, heroes of mine like Bob McDill um who wrote Good Old Boys Like Me, which is one of the most beautiful literary country songs I've ever heard. When I was a kid, Uncle Remus, he put me to bed With a picture of Stonewall Jackson above my head Then Daddy came in to kiss his little man With gin on his breath and a Bible in his hand He talked about honor and things I should know Then he'd stagger a little as he went out the door I can still hear the soft southern winds in the live oak trees And those were Williams boys, they still mean a lot to me Hank in Tennessee I guess we're all gonna be what we're gonna be So what do you do with good old boys like me? 
sound in the night like the wind does But you ain't afraid if you're washed in the blood like I was I just wanted to see if I could try that and that's where I went I, I kind of go where my heart wants me to go I've never been a a good uh, gun for hire you know mm-hmm. I just kind of go where my heart wants to go and that's where it has wanted to go for a while I love how you uh, reference the, 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 the writers who came before you. You've talked about Bobby Braddock, you just referenced Bob McDill, and another one who had a big influence on you was um, another legend, Harlan Howard. Yeah. Oh, gosh, he was so dear to me. I think the, the, the thing, the, the brilliance of Harlan Howard is his, the economy of his, of his writing, how he can put something so simple <laughs> and smack you upside the head. <laughs> now I've got heartaches by the number Troubles by the score Every day you love me less Each day I love you more I'd fall to pieces Each time I see Got a tiger by the table's plain to see And I won't be much when you get through with me I'm losing weight and turning mighty pain And it looks like I've got a tiger by the table He's just so good at it. He 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 was a master. And that was another that was another thing that I wanted to do. I wrote this song with Jim Collins called "I Don't Feel Like Loving You Today" yeah. uh, because I wanted to try to write a song like Harlem would, and that was sort of my exercise in that. I don't feel like loving you today, so don't you even try to change my mind. The best thing you. Can do right now is just go away. Cause I don't feel like loving you today. I don't want to talk about last night. I'm angry and I haven't had much sleep. And I'm so tired and bloodshot. Harlan Howard's genius for economy of words. And then you've got a, a quote 
uh, that I read were uh, one of the pieces of advice you give to to young songwriters is learn not to edit yourself. And you know, on the face of it, this sounds like a contradiction, but when you dive a little deeper, it actually makes a hell of a lot of sense. Get everything out there, sift through it, and then find what fits. Is that? Am I reading that correctly? You're totally reading that correctly. That's exactly it. Don't be afraid to look stupid. <laughs> I just, it's it's something I say to some young writers when I can tell that they've got some kind of idea in their head and they're afraid to say something because they don't want to look stupid. Mm-hmm. And I say, just say it. I do it. I look stupid all the time. <laughs> I get shot down. Just say whatever's in your head. <laughs> there are many times it's good. So... You have to get it out there in order to get rid of it. And the other thing is you may have an idea that doesn't quite fit, but bam, that sparks an idea with somebody else in the room. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you don't mind, I want to go through, I want to just, this is like a a what's what of big female country songs in the 90s. And I just want to throw the title out. Just give me, you know, the the cliff notes of the story behind the song, if there is one. Because I know sometimes these things just fall together and you you don't even know you've written a hit until four months later. It's, you know, somebody picked it up and they're in the studio with it. But um, Yeah, four years. <laughs> or, or four years, yeah. Uh, that Kind of Girl, which I think was, uh, it was a huge hit for Patty Loveless. But that was, was that your first, like, big hit in the 90s? Yeah, and that was sort of the beginning of my run with the girls. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When the girls were running, we were all running together. Um, That was, I think I was just really inspired by um, John Hyatt's Bring the Family record. It was just the grit and the cool of that record, and that's just where it came from. I was just hammering away, and that thought came into my head, and we wrote it. There's a man in a Stetson hat, howling like an alley cat, outside my window tonight. Saying, baby, put on something hot, meet me in the parking lot, about a quarter to nine. I get the feeling that... Side of Memphis sounds pretty autobiographical, even though you were born in Nashville. Is it? Uh, it it was actually Gary's autobiographical song. Really, Gary Harrison. Yeah, we were at we had a little a little a tiny but mighty little publishing company, and we were in the funky little office and in our funky little kitchen. And we were all having coffee in the morning and. And we were just, we were talking about where we were from. I I was the only one that was from Nashville. Um, And Gary said, I come from the wrong side of Memphis. (laughs) And I just, I just stopped and I pointed at him. I said, you and me are going to write that. 
<laughs> and we did really quickly. We went, I, I think we did that day. I think we just went back into one of the offices and, and wrote it in like 20 minutes. I mean, it was ridiculously fast. Wow. song besides wild angels that was that was tough to get out but you're you're, you're glad you hung with it it was yeah um no most of most of my hits happen really fast uh, those i think they're gifts they're gifts like from day one sometimes you have to work real hard and it works out but but uh most of my hits were really easy to write yeah, you, you have a quote that I've seen several times where you talk about when you were younger that songs would come to you almost fully formed. Is that kind of what mm-hmm. you're referencing? Yeah, it, 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 it's like it just kind of falls into the room. It's like the God is the third writer. <laughs> <laughs> but I've heard so many songwriters talk about that, or when there are a few songwriters and everything's clicking, there's an, all of a sudden... Uh, quote unquote, another songwriter is in the room. Are you constantly like writing down ideas, notes, you know, keeping track of little turns of phrases? Um, and then you go in and, and I don't know, maybe you sort of have a leg up subconsciously oh, when yeah. you go in because you've, you've got like that yeah. one thing that you can write around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that just happened to me last week, actually. It, and it was one of those special it was it was a really special ride. We wrote the most beautiful little song, and it did feel like a gift. It did feel like one of those gifts. You you, you got to work to get to those magic places. Um, it takes a lot of work before you're allowed that song to fall from the sky. Your radar is always up. Yeah. All right, a couple more songs I want to ask you about. One of my favorites that, that you've written uh, is You and Tequila. I had no idea that it was written with Dina Carter, and she actually <laughs> recorded it. I had no clue about that. You both that. did. <laughs> wow. Here I am again, kicking dust in the canyon wind, waiting for that sun to go down. Made it up Mulholland Drive, hell-bent on getting high. Above lights town You and tequila make me crazy Run like poison in my blood One more night could kill me, baby One is one too many one more is never enough. 
so uh, we have a mutual friend <clears throat> who lives on Mulholland Drive. And, you know, Dina moved out to Los Angeles years ago. And whenever I'd come out to see my friend Gretchen, Dina would come up and we'd have like a girls' night in Gretchen's living room overlooking, you know, the valley. It's so beautiful. And just get caught up. And Dina, Dina was having a lot of just boyfriend issues at that time. And it was kind of her time to pour her heart out, you know. And we were having our little girl hang on the Holland Drive. So uh, we wrote about that. It was real life. This is my girlfriend, you know. One more night could kill me, baby. One is one too many. One more is never enough. When it comes to you, all the damage I could do. And Strawberry Wine, which is a song that is, it, that, that's going to be listened to generations from now. Oh, let's hope. It's a very personal song, and it's like what almost mm-hmm. five minutes long, and, it, and it's a waltz. Did you oh, have yeah. any hope that that song would go anywhere, much less become never? Well, really, never. Dina called me from the road, and she'd been playing, um, you know, radio stations and radio station shows, and she called me from the road, and she hadn't released a single yet. And she said, "I think we're gonna re- we're gonna release Strawberry Wine as a first single." And I was horrified <laughs> because because she was my friend, you know. And I didn't want to ruin her career. <laughs> I said, "You can't. You got to do something up tempo, or not a not a waltz." <laughs> <laughs> and she was right. I was, but I was just terrified. And it really took a long time to start taking off. It was agonizing. And I thought, you know, every week, you know, it would just kind of inch up the charts real slowly. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to, she's not, she's going to blame me. (laughs) (laughs) And and it went on to become song of the year that year. Yeah, I know. He was working through college on my grandpa's farm. I was thirsting for knowledge And he had a car Yeah, I was caught somewhere Between a woman and a child One restless summer We found love growing wild On the banks of the river I watched the uh, the acceptance speech where you got up, and it was just real brief. But you dedicated it to your mom, uh, who you, my mom. But she, you, you would write songs with her. Yeah, yeah. strawberry <laughs> wine, Grace and Bird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
um, I would like to thank Dina for cutting this song and doing such a wonderful job. I wrote my first songs with my mother, and this is to her memory. She was my coach. She was brutal. Really? <laughs> she, which is, she was great, you know. She, she made me mad, and, and she was tough love all the way. If there's one bit of advice from your mom that you could pass on on this podcast to any aspiring young songwriters, uh, what, what would that advice from her be? Write it like you feel it. Sing it like you feel it. If you don't feel it, don't do it. That's about as perfect as it gets right there. <laughs> that was Mama. God rest her soul. But Tracy Bird, thank you so much for taking time today. I appreciate it. I know you got to go look at a house. Thanks yeah, for- thank you so much. It's been a joy talking to you. Like strawberry wine. The fields have grown over now. Years since they've seen the flowers. And that'll do it for this month's edition of Write You a Song. Thank you again to the phenomenal Matresa Berg. If you like Write You a Song, take a moment, give it a quick review, give us some stars on Google because it does help float this thing out there into the ether. Uh, This podcast is a production of Bonneville International Communications and KNCI Radio in Sacramento. If you're new to the podcast, go back through and listen to some of the other 30 interviews with some of the biggest names in country music songwriting. And in fact, next month, we've got one of the biggest names ever. You're going to miss me. You're gonna walk this back. She said, play it again, play it again, play it again. Might have a little dirt on my boots, but I'm taking you uptown tonight. I just gotta tell you, baby, tonight looks good on you. Now he's wrapped around her finger, she's the center of Ashley Gorley, next month on Write You a Song.